Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Let me try to explain this show to you, because I think it does require some explaining and some framing. Uh, First of all, I'll tell you that in the second segment, you're going to hear from Rebecca Stott. Uh, She uh, is a a broadcaster, professor and author, author of a book about growing up and being born into a group. Well, she calls it a cult, uh, uh, a group called the Exclusive Brethren uh, in England. Her, uh, her book is called In the Days of Rain, A Daughter, a Father, a Cult. You'll also hear a young man named Eric, and, uh, we're not using his last name, talk about what it's like to withdraw from the Hare Krishna movement, otherwise known as the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And we're going to begin with a conversation about Jonestown. And I guess the reason I feel like this requires some framing is if you put anybody else's religion next to Jonestown in any kind of framework or show, I mean, you're obviously, uh, there's sort of a a guilt by association or a potential, you know, just, I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't be comfortable if my religion was talked about on the same show as Jonestown. There's a way in which Jonestown is a very specific kind of answer to a whole set of questions that we have about high-demand religions. And I will say that in 1978, when the horrific events of Jonestown went down, my main job at the time was writing about religion for a newspaper. Um, And I was writing about a lot of religions that were, you know, I mean, sort of fringe religions, sometimes called cults. It hadn't occurred to me that the people that I was talking to could get killed uh, or that maybe even I could get killed. Um, Right around the same time, I actually did get caught being somewhere where I wasn't supposed to be in connection with one of these high demand and kind of fringe religions. And it was a rather terrifying 20 or 30 minutes uh, before I was sure that I wasn't going to be harmed in some way. But, you know, by and large, it's difficult to know how we differentiate between something that is just a religion. It's a religion that it, maybe it's newer, maybe it's different, maybe it's uh, it's characterized by having one highly charismatic leader who seems to be able to get away with a lot of stuff. But you could say that about, say, Mormonism when it started out. I don't think people call Mormonism a cult anymore. It certainly looked and acted like a cult in its earliest days under Joseph Smith. I could give you lots of other examples of that, too. So I think we're going to explore some of these questions today without necessarily... Um, you know, lassoing all three of these groups with the same rope. We're going to start with Jeff Gwynn. His new book is The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Uh, Jim, uh, Jeff Gwynn, uh, investigative journalist and author. Um, Welcome to this conversation. Well, thank you very much, Colin. So um, one of the things that you do in your book, I mean, uh, there's been an awful lot of other writing uh, in over the decades about Jim Jones and the People's Temple and what happened uh, at Jonestown. One of the things that you do painstakingly at the beginning of this book is create a personal psychological portrait of Jim Jones. Uh, you explore at great length not just Jim Jones himself, but the family that uh, that birthed him, the rather unusual mother he had, or sort of almost endlessly dissatisfied, status-seeking mother who never really got the things that she wanted in life but continued to feel entitled to them, and the emergence of this young man as a, um, as a boy with proclivities that were unlike any other boy's proclivities around him. Tell us a, a little bit about this uh, young Jim Jones. Well, Jim Jones's mother 
was a great believer in reincarnation and a non-believer in organized religion. So from the time he's a toddler, he's hearing from her that she's been a great woman in other lives, though she's being thwarted in the present one, but that it was her fate to give birth to one of the greatest men who ever lived. And I think if you pound that into a two, three, four, five-year-old's head long enough, that's going to have a certain effect. And then as a child, Jones was fascinated by the churches in the small farm town where he was growing up. Lynn, Indiana has about 900 residents, but five churches. And we're, we're talking about ranging from Methodist to Church of the Nazarene. And Jim Jones, as a little boy, voluntarily joins them all mm -hmm. and will spend some Sundays running from part of one service to another. Uh, by the time he's in elementary school, he's practicing giving sermons out in the woods. By middle school, he's conducting funerals for roadkill. So the twig has been early in a couple different ways. One, in a sort of paganism or belief in reincarnation and, and fate being decreed. And the other, an honest and ongoing attraction to more organized and traditional religion. Um, uh, skipping ahead, I mean, one of the things... I mean, first of all, it's very hard to kind of unthread all of Jones's impulses uh, in all the ways that you suggest. His early fascination with religion seems very tightly yoked to this notion of his own greatness, that he identifies religion as a, a way that one can become great. Uh, if he's to fulfill his mother's prophecy, there are only a few paths that you can take. Religion, you can see that works really well. But he has these other things that are wired into him, and it's less clear where they can come from. And one of them is a, an apparent uh, genuine commitment to egalitarianism, often in the form of socialism, and insistence uh, on the rights of African Americans, even in ways that militate against his own success, right? He is willing, in, uh, as a young, aspiring pastor, to take on the establishment of churches around at least those two issues, even if it doesn't work to his advantage. Well, see, this is one of the things that I think is deliberately overlooked about Jim Jones. We like our villains to be 100% evil. And yet, if you look back at his life and career, particularly in the early years of his ministry, he accomplished great things from the time he was a child. He was committed to racial equality and social integration. When he's a teenager, he's taken the bus on weekends into the nearest big town in Indiana, which was Richmond, preaching on street corners that all races are equal and that racial prejudice is wrong. And the only thing he could possibly get out of that was occasionally getting roughed up by other white teenagers who didn't like what he was doing. He truly was committed to trying to bring about racial and economic equality. The fact that these good sort of intentions mingled with megalomania, with paranoia, later increasing drug use, Eventually, the dark threads blot out the bright ones, but we can't deny that at least initially the bright ones were there, and that is what drew his initial followers. I think also one thing that emerges, and it emerges pretty early in your telling of the story, is that 
religion and Christianity and Jesus are at best, in times anyway, kind of open questions to him, and at time, other times questions he's not even all that interested in. He really sees his primary message as being one uh, of effectively socialism, uh, a term that he's very comfortable, comfortable with himself, uh, and this notion of racial equality. And if he has to be a spiritual leader of a Christian flock to do that, that's what he'll do. Uh, but it's kind of interesting. I mean, in a way, this isn't, he isn't really exactly a religious leader. He's a guy who sees religion as a way to do something else that's ideologically important to him. Well, he calls it socialist pragmatism. You do what you have to do to bring people within the organization then you train them to be good socialists. The ultimate purpose of People's Temple, and this was something that eventually became widely understood by its members, was not so much to seek God and and future rewards in heaven, but to set an example for the rest of the world of respecting everyone equally, regardless of race, regardless of economic status, regardless of gender. Jones, within any of his sermons, and these sermons could last four or five hours, might at one point jump up and down on the Bible and and call it the cruelest text ever written because it condones slavery and misogyny, and yet just minutes later could be quoting and citing Scripture in a very dramatic way. He was able to balance it. Some of his followers were traditional Christians, and they came to what they believed was a Disciples of Christ branch. He was affiliated with disciples to worship the Lord. He had atheists sitting side by side with them who thought there was nothing of God in this but really great social intent. Jones was a master at being able to seem several things at the same time. And one longtime follower told me, What you thought Jim was saying depended on what you wanted to hear him saying. And he was he was fantastic at that. And I think the other thing, you know, we struggle with is how do people who are obviously very well-meaning and well-intentioned and good people and not necessarily stupid people get involved with something like this? And, And some of the fallacy is if you walk on into any one scene in the middle of all this, it appears to be ludicrous. So if, with no preparation whatsoever, you show up at one of these four- to five-hour sermons, and Jones is there saying that he actually lived in the past and saw Jesus taken off the cross, and he went to India, and then says in the same sermon that he himself may be an extraterrestrial. I mean, standing there, you'd think, well, this is just such errant nonsense. Nobody in their right mind could be spellbound by this or or led to do to commit their lives uh, to to following this man. The problem is that's just one ro- one moment, right? The reality is the accretion of all kinds of moments that have led up to this. Did you get in any insight into how that accretion works? I mean, how how do you know normal people wind up with somebody so abnormal? And that's one of the things that fascinated me in writing this book. I have talked to literally hundreds of People's Temple survivors, not just those who left the church before Jonestown, but even up to and including one man who was there during much of the death and only escaped it himself by Jones assigning him on an errand out of the camp. What Jones did, we have to remember, is not simply confined to what appeared to be rambling sermons on Sundays. Sundays. 
People's Temple from the mid-1950s, long before it was fashionable to do so, had some of the most outstanding social outreach programs anywhere in the nation and received a great deal of credit for that. They had free restaurants for those who wanted to eat, free clothing for those in need. They also had marriage counseling. They had drug addiction counseling. They had programs that sent ghetto kids who otherwise would only be educated in the streets to college, and they paid the full fare, everything, room, board, tuition. So they're doing all these great things so that even those who become put off by Jones, who think, my God, he's up there raving, he's ranting, he's saying stupid things, ultimately stay because they believe he is just performing as he needs to to get more people in. And meanwhile, they are part of making these social programs happen. So they're seeing the great good that results. In other words, uh, it's not so much what he's saying as what he's doing that keeps them there. Right. So praise for this pioneering urban ministry that seems so bent uh, also on uh, on racial equality um, comes from Rosalind Carter, Walter Mondale, Jerry Brown, uh, San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown. Uh, they, they say wonderful things about him. But the other thing that we know, I mean, we know it about Jim Jones, but I think we kind of know it in general. It's going to come up in the second segment of the show with Re- Rebecca Stott, is that, that one of the ways that you, you achieve the kind of thing that you're describing, Jeff Gwynn, is I mean, particularly the kind of thing where like people will sit there and listen to you and an atheist will be sitting next to a very conventional Christian. That means the common denominator really is Jones, that Jones, Jones's charisma, Jones's ability to control and, and inspire is what is linking all these people together. They don't all necessarily believe the same things. And that's an incredible kind of power. And it's almost impossible to find people who will have that kind of power and not abuse it, right? I mean, we see it with Jones. He abuses it sexually and, and, and in every other possible way. There's two parts to this, I think. The first is that Jones, as are many charismatic religious leaders who ultimately go off the deep end and bring their followers with him, is a demagogue. He initially appeals to people and brings them in, but then he is expert at beginning to isolate them. Not just geographically, it's no, it's no mistake that they end up in the deep jungles of Guyana where they have no voice to listen to but Jim Jones's, but gradually building in them the sense of paranoia towards outsiders that Jones himself felt. It's us against them. And combine that with followers gradually, not instantly, but gradually, giving up all that they own really setting aside their blood relatives, alienating friends, saying, I'm giving up everything and going with this man, and how dare you say it's stupid and I shouldn't do it. And so you get them isolated where it's hard to get out anyway, and then you have sheer human pride. Nobody wants to say, you know what, I completely screwed up, and try to go back and ask people to forgive them and start all over. It's like, You've ultimately committed yourself, and so now you must stay. That's human nature. You know, uh, first of all, there's a a lot to cover here in this book, and we won't uh, begin to do more than scratch the surface. The book is The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by uh, Jeff Gwynn. 
You know, one of the things that uh, we can maybe linger on, hopefully not in a facile way, is the way that this this whole story now has been kind of encapsulated in this uh, glibly thrown around term, drinking the Kool-Aid, which now kind of means sort of voluntarily, you know, uh, um, signing up for somebody else's set of ideas. Um, and and I know it's something that troubles you, troubles you, not just because it was Flavor Aid, a cheaper version of Kool-Aid, but because... That's it's too easy, right? It's too easy a way to talk about something as complex and tragic as what really did happen. A lot of us just want to believe the simplest explanation possible. And in terms of drinking the Kool-Aid, the reason that is so offensive, it, it gives the impression that in November 1978, there, there was one really crackpot leader and there were over 900 brainless, zombie-like followers who simply did what he told them. That's not the case at all. You've got to remember the population of Jonestown at the end, sure it was a little over 900. Almost 300 of those were children. We're talking toddlers and infants who have no real choice in the matter. Another several hundred old folks in their late 70s, 80s, even into their 90s, who, if they don't do what Jones is suggesting, are left out in the middle of the jungle and won't last a day or two. Maybe a hundred or so rabid true believers who will do anything he says, but the rest of the adults don't want to do it. They're fighting it. They're screaming they don't want to do it. I mean, there's a death tape on the Internet anyone can listen to. Jones had a tape recorder running. And ultimately, you have armed guards. And if people won't voluntarily take the the poison, they're injected with it. They're held down and forcibly injected. I've seen the autopsy reports in Guyana. You could tell from the abscesses on the body where the needles went in. So it wasn't mass suicide in any sense. It was mass murder. You know, one thing that I think all of us will struggle with, and I don't know that your trip down this road, the road to Jonestown, necessarily was guaranteed to provide an answer. But look, you know, go around the country right now. There are a lot of people involved in very unconventional religious movements. And a lot of them will resemble in some of the more pernicious controlling details the People's Temple. There are are lots of people who are in movements right now where there's one charismatic leader and there's an awful lot of control over the behavior of everybody else. Uh, You know, I could add in a whole bunch of other things, but it's not going to end this way. Um, uh, Did you ever figure out, I mean, this is obviously special in the most unhappily special way. This doesn't typically represent the way that something like this comes to an end. What what was it? What what makes this so different? Uh, A couple things. And the first is Jim Jones. He is a demagogue, but if you ranked him among them in the insidious sort of ways they control people, Uh, Clearly, he is one of the masters of that dark art. The second is the time. In the 1970s, you've got to remember, America's recoiling from the strife-ridden 60s, and people have lost their footing. They don't know who to believe. The government is no longer considered to be a protector, but rather an antagonist. Uh, Organized religion, the big churches... People aren't comfortable with that anymore. And in a time when so many people who desperately wanted to help bring about a better world are looking for some means to do so, there is Jim Jones. 
he thrived not just because of his own ability, because of the circumstances of the times. And frankly, in researching my book, I'm now scared as hell about our current times because there's a lot of similarities. And it's in times of great upheaval of social schisms that in religion, demagogues like Jones can make great strides. Um, on that ominous note, we're going to have to uh, stop uh, Jeff Gwynn. The book is The Ro- Road to uh, Jonestown, Jim Jones, and the People's Temple. Uh, we're going to switch gears a little, but not entirely, uh, and talk about another very, very demanding religious movement, one that did not end quite so tragically. So as we talk about these high-demand religious movements, we're kind of going in reverse order. Uh, and we started with the most uh, severe, tragic, apocalyptic, and 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 deadly. And now uh, we will, I think, become a little bit more, more benign with each new iteration. Not to say that the exclusive brethren were necessarily uh, an easy place to be. Uh, when I was first thinking about doing the show, I was wondering, who, who else could we talk about? And then I listened to Rebecca Stott uh, on one of my favorite shows, Start the Week. She's a broadcaster, professor, professor of literature and creative writing uh, at the University of East Anglia. And the author of several books, including the latest, In the Days of Rain, A Daughter, a Father, a Cult. So, Rebecca Stott, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi. So, um, hello. hello. So, the exclusive brethren are going to be probably less well-known to, to this audience than, than some other groups might be. Maybe just give them a, a, a Cook's tour of that. There are about 45,000 of them currently. Um, in the world, spread across the mostly the English-speaking world, but there are some in Europe as well. Um, and uh, there are 16,000 in the UK, where I grew up amongst them. I was fourth generation. So they don't recruit people. So people won't necessarily know about them because they don't recruit. They're not interested in recruiting. They're interested in keeping themselves as separate from the rest of the world as possible because they believe that uh, the rapture is coming and that um, only they will leave. And uh, in, in order to, um, they need to prepare a clean place for the Lord. So it means le- living very, very separatist, um, highly controlled, highly ordered lives, um, mostly in the suburbs of large towns. Um, the, the organization began, or the, the groups began in Ireland in the uh, 1830s and became the Plymouth Brethren. People may have heard of the Plymouth Brethren. I think people have written quite a lot more about the Plymouth Brethren. But the exclusive Brethren broke away from the Plymouth Brethren in the 1840s because they thought the Plymouth Brethren weren't being hardline enough. Um, so essentially, um, a separatist group, uh, women are not... Um, uh, allowed to speak in meeting, um, they are, they have every aspect of their lives controlled um, and ordered, and there are rules for everything. Um, but that's yeah, that's essentially the group. I was born into it, fourth generation. So that means that my father, grandfather, um, on both sides, uh, four generations back, uh, belong to the brethren. Actually, l- less so with my mother's side, but. Um, my father, fourth, fourth generation. So it's one thing to use a word like separatist. It's another to really, you know, understand the kind of insularity that we're talking about. Yes, uh, you wore headscarves. You were not allowed to cut your hair. Uh, you weren't allowed television, newspapers, radios, cinema, holidays, 
watches, wristwatches, uh, or pets. Mm. It was thought uh, mm. uh, that uh, a cat would be what? Would sort of subvert your love of the Lord. The cat would be sort of a, a, a distraction of some kind. Nobody really knows. It was the, the, in the 60s, what happened to the group, which was already extremely strict, um, was taken over by somebody um, called Jim Taylor Jr. And he took the, cult, he took the group from being a very, very strict sect into a cult and brought in loads, hundreds of new rules. Um, so no one really knows why pets. I don't think he ever really said, but it was a, it was an order that he brought in in the late 60s. And suddenly, you know, you just didn't question it. Uh, all these pets either had to be found new homes or had to be put down, you know, and, and children like me growing up in that, we didn't have a dog, but my cousins did. Um, children growing up in that wouldn't have anything explained. It was just a new order. I don't think any of the parents could have explained. I think probably if he was challenged, he would have said, oh, it means that you're too tied to this world rather than the next. Um, uh, you know, everybody had to be ready to leave immediately. So hence, um, you know, minimizing ties of any kind. Um, one of your windows into this book, uh, which you, I think, had not really ever intended to write, uh, was your father, particularly your, your father in his last days uh, on Earth. Um, and one thing that he he referred to this decade that you're talking about, the Jim Taylor Jr. Uh, ascendance, uh, he called it the Nazi decade. And I think that had less to do with cats and more to do with really kind of the repression of dissent, right? There were suddenly, you could be interrogated for something, right? Yes, yeah. I mean, the Brethren had always always been really strict, but suddenly there were introductions of new rules that were, made it so much uh, more absolute, such as you couldn't have any contact with anybody who was not in fellowship, as we called it. Um, and if you were discovered to have contact with people, I mean, other than uh, necessary contact, like through, through work, but mostly Brethren worked for other Brethren, so they can minimize contact that way but no contact with non-brethren. So if you had, for instance, a teenage son who hadn't yet joined the fellowship because he had doubts, he couldn't live in the house anymore. Uh, if you kept him living in the house, um, you would be withdrawn from. You would be um, put under interrogation. He would be put under interrogation. And then you would be withdrawn. The whole family would be withdrawn from. Now, that doesn't sound too dramatic, but if the only people you know in the world are brethren, and you've been told that everyone outside your group belongs to Satan, which is what we were told, um, and that the outside world is utterly wicked, um, then being withdrawn from, being thrown out, um, being expelled was um, really, really traumatizing. And actually, since I've written the book, which has only been out in the UK for about a week, I have had scores and scores and scores of emails from ex-brethren around the world who have never, they say, many of them say, they've never been able to talk about how terrible it was to be in it, even to their children and grandchildren, um, just because they wouldn't know where to begin. Right. Um, so, yeah, the stories I've been told just in the last week of what people went through during that decade. So my father was dying, and he had tried to write his account of it, um, he had been a, a preacher inside the Brethren. My grandfather had been too. Um, but he had left and spent the rest of his life trying to work out what had happened to them all, you know, why it had been, why they'd allowed it to happen. 
So he'd got to the, the beginnings of that decade and not been able to get any further. It was just too traumatising for him. So when he died, um, I made a promise, perhaps rather foolishly, <laughs> that, I would in, that I would use my skills as a historian and writer and the huge archive of material that he left me, including his own memoir, to try to finish the work that he'd begun. I didn't know what I had <laughs> bitten off. Um, it really was uh, so much worse than I had thought it was. The stories I discovered about suicide and forced confessions and people being locked up in their own homes, um, except not locked up, just kept under isolation in, in their own homes for weeks on end. And one terrible story about a man who had been uh, was withdrawn from or not withdrawn from he'd been shut up which meant he was isolated in his own home for weeks and weeks and weeks who uh, lost his mind and axed his wife and children to death in the middle of the night and then hanged himself right it did it did seem that there are two areas of great risk one of them is that you could be expelled you know for rather minimal offenses and cast out into this world that you were told was totally of satan and in which you had no safety net or connections in which case mm. you know the chances that you might kill yourself or go mad are rather high or at least drift into some kind of deviance because you no longer had any recognizable structure and of course the other risk was that you would be kept in the movement subjected to the kinds of things that you're talking about and also because of forced confinement or any other kinds of techniques used on you, commit suicide, go mad. I mean, you were, you know, pardon the expression, damned if you did or damned if you didn't. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the that's how cults work, you know. This, um, I had to do quite a lot of reading. It was interesting listening to Jeff just now. I had to do quite a lot of reading about the structures of cults or the social psychology of cults, how they work, because my father had had really struggled to understand that question you know why did why did we let it happen why didn't we leave um and of course it was my question too because as a child i was looking around at all the women around me who i could see um you know were seeing all of the breaking of rules that i saw but no one was standing up no one was um declaring this to be wrong um uh and so yes yeah, so that's what i did some time working on with social psychology of cults and and isolation is one of them um, and repeated mantras is another you know making people stick to very 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 tightly controlled rules you know the micromanagement of every aspect of your life so that you really don't have time to think about the bigger picture but you're concentrating all the time on being compliant being good you know mm. um, and it was fascinating, I mean, to me, to think, well, my father called it the Nazi decade. I'd say to him, don't be absurd. You know, what you lived through can't be compared to what the Nazis did. And he would say, it's not the scale of what they did. It's the structure, you know, that we can learn. We can see the same structure. It's the same pattern that plays out every time. You know, um, charismatic leader, closed community, micromanaged, mind control, um, and fear. You know, that's what we lived with. And that's the story that I get from all the ex-brethren who are writing to me now is we lived in fear all the time. We lived as if we were on the edge of a volcano, you know? Right. I discovered in, in researching this segment also there's a, an ex, um, ex-exclusive Brethren Facebook page where they all uh, share stories. There's a, almost a little bit more yeah. of a, a gallows humor uh, there. We're talking to Rebecca Stott. Her book is In the Days of Rain, A Daughter, A Father, A Cult. So one other aspect of the pattern that you were just uh, describing is that, you know, almost inevitably, whether it's Jim's, Jim Jones or, or 
or JT Jr., um, it, uh, when somebody has total power, they start using total power. They start using it totally. Uh, and, and almost inevitably, they, they start taking liberties, with sexual liberties, with the people under their control. This happened with Jones, and, and it really was the semi-undoing of the evangelical, uh, excuse me, of the exclusive brethren. I mean, mm-hmm. when people did leave, it was partly because of a massive Taylor-related sex scandal. Mm. But what surprised me, so yes, in the 70s, um, the, in 1970, uh, Jim Taylor Jr., then in his 70s, was um, drinking very heavily and uh, was beginning to molest women. Um, and he was found in bed with a young woman who he'd spent most of the weekend with, um, who'd been brought to his door by her husband. Um, and the scandal broke, and he denied it um, he said that the Lord had told him to uh, do this as a kind of test to see who was with Satan and who wasn't. Um, and uh, and then, of course, four months later, he died of alcoholic dementia, or at least he died, and, and yeah, he died with, in an alcohol-related incident. Um, but that's what surprised me in reading about that, because the scandal is, was so well documented and there were so many witness statements, is the brethren just denied it. And so only 8,000 people left, and that included my family um, and most of my family, um, most of my immediate family, but quite a few cousins and so on stayed inside. And we've never seen them again, because, and we will never see them again. They are, um, they, they, if they were to see us in the street, they couldn't acknowledge us because it would then risk their place in the in the group you know they'd be withdrawn from um so how how few people left given the scale of the of the scandal and how well documented it was and how uh, widely the information was circulated you know what those leaders had then to say is just it's not true it's a conspiracy and of course even if those people who stayed inside did think oh probably this is true they risk too much in lose, in leaving. You know, they would have lost their families, their homes, their businesses, everything. And they'd have had to start again in a world that they didn't know. Um, so that's why people stay. Um, I suspect there's quite a lot of doubt amongst current members of the Brethren, but um, they're not in a position to leave hmm. psychologically or practically, you know. Yes. Rebecca Stott, I have so many other questions for you. Many of them are actually answered in the book, uh, and that's the way they're going to have to be for the listeners right now, too, because we're (laughs) out of time. Uh, Rebecca Stott is the author of In the Days of Rain, A Daughter, A Father, A Cult. There's much to say more, much more to say about this, including Rebecca Stott has had an acclaimed career as an entirely secular writer of uh, very well-respected books. So you might be wondering, how did she get to be who she is, given how she grew up? That's one of the questions. I was going to discuss with her, and it is answered to a certain degree in the book. So you'll have to go there for your answer. Our final segment today will be a conversation about what it's like to leave a different kind of religious movement, the International Society of Krishna Consciousness. You probably know them better as the Hare Krishna movement. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea with help from Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. 
Our intern is Tim Cohn. Part of Bill Curry was played by George Harrison. On tomorrow's show, a look back at the week in pop culture on the nose. And now, back to Colin. In the late 1970s, uh, I was writing a lot about religion. And it was sort of a time when there were a lot of different sects and very high-commitment religious movements, and the word cult was being kind of slung around indiscriminately. So there was a lot to write about on that basis, or at least sort of in that sort of general part of the religious taxonomy. And one of the most memorable days that I had doing all that, it just emblazoned on my mind, there was some kind of a presentation being made, I believe at the old Harvard Seminary, by the International Society of Krishna Consciousness. You know them or knew them probably better as the Hare Krishna movement. And I wound up talking to a young man whose family was there to visit him. They were not members of this movement. And he was a very, obviously very intelligent, very interesting guy. But the more that we talked, the more I realized, first of all, that his, his family was standing nearby and obviously trying to be sort of sweet and supportive, but also kind of heartbroken by the way in which this religious movement had taken just an incredible amount of primacy in his life. And so I was asking him some questions about that, I think in the presence of his mother. And he was just explaining to me how, you know, he it wasn't that he didn't love them anymore or anything, but they just couldn't ever mean anything to him compared to what this meant to him. And more so maybe than any moment I had during that time, it really struck me. I mean, it just struck me how powerful this particular religious doctrine was and and the way that there was just an immovability. There wasn't 1% of movement, never mind 20 or 30% of movement, and this young man's position about that vis-a-vis his family or anything else. Well, then, fast forward about 15 years, and I'm teaching a class at Trinity, and it's a class full of really independent thinkers. Oddly enough, though, probably the most independent thinker in that class was a member of the International Society of Christian Consciousness. He's joining us right now. He's a Montreal-based writer and former member now of the Hare Christian movement. And so, Eric, first of all, good to hear your voice. Uh, yeah, good to hear yours, Colin. So one of the things you've been thinking about, obviously, this, this was, uh, for you also, a very, very powerful strain in your life. Maybe you could talk about what it was, first of all, maybe that attracted you to the Hare Krishna movement? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the practical answer is easy. I, I knew someone in high school who was sort of a, a friend or acquaintance that had become involved when we were in high school. And I, I sort of got back in touch with her after my freshman year of college, and she invited me to a temple. I mean, it was, it was that easy. As far as why I got involved, that's a little bit more complex. I mean, I was... I'd grown up in a, a Catholic family, and I, religion was always important to me. And I'd become more interested in Eastern religions and Eastern philosophies, Buddhism and Zen in particular, I think, at that time. But, uh, you know, I was really struck by the experience of going to this temple in North Jersey, uh, where at the time there were a lot of young men roughly my age who had walked away from high school or college or jobs or whatever to live full-time as monks in this particular temple. Uh, and, and so I was attracted by that, by these, these young men that were apparently living by their convictions. And I, you know, I think I wanted to sort of give that a shot, you know, see if, if that was something that I could do. And you know, when you walk into a, a group like this or a situation like this, there is sort of a, you know, everything is sort of ready-made ready for you to insert yourself into that, you know, in that environment. 
You know, um, one thing I want to emphasize, I've emphasized it throughout the show, we're talking about three completely discrete religious experiences here. Uh, there's not necessarily much of a through line from from uh, Jim Jones to, to Bhakti Vedanta and uh, the uh, International Society for Christian, Christian Consciousness. But, you know, one thing that is true about high demand religious movements is kind of built, Eric, I think, into the, that term, which is that you're essentially reward, rewarded for your deepening commitment and sincerity. Uh, and I think this is especially true in ISKCON compared to the two other things that we're talking about today. You know, you're rewarded for those manifestations of sincere, deep commitment. And if you're going to climb the ladder, that's how you're going to climb it, right? Yeah, sure. You're rewarded for what are in most cases sort of outward displays of devotion or for uh, involvement. The more time you spend at the temple, uh, the more time you spend outside of the temple reading or chanting or, you know, practicing their sort of religious practices outside of the temple. But then also there are uh, physical displays. I mean, I'm sure everyone has seen our Christian devotees on the street, uh, men dressed in what they call dhoti and kurta, this, this, uh, you know, sort of traditional Indian dress and women wearing saris. So, So there's like an external expression or manifestation of your willingness to become a part of this really different culture. You know, I don't mean to draw a parallel if there isn't one, but you and I are having this conversation on a Tuesday. Uh, the previous day, uh, the president of the United States had a cabinet meeting, which <laughs> seemed to consist of going around the table and having everybody express, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah. you, we, I, we could take some of the words that you just used <laughs> and yeah, apply them sure. to this cabinet meeting. I don't, yeah, go ahead, react to that. Well, it's interesting. I thought we might talk about that today. The video that I saw, I didn't see Trump uh, explicitly request this sort of devotion. Maybe I missed something. But whether he did or didn't, I mean, to me, actually, if he didn't, it's more interesting <laughs> because you're seeing a particular social dynamic where the, you know, your, your fealty or your, your devotion, your loyalty <laughs> to the leader is being rewarded in this environment where everyone is trying to outdo, you know, everyone else in terms of, you know, their loyalty or in a, you know, religious context, we would say purity or devotion or something like that. So uh, your story isn't that unusual a one. I don't, I don't know how many, you know, really reliable analytics there are on the Hare Krishna movement and ISKCON, but I mean, there's sort of a general sense that there may be more people who have uh, been in the movement and then stepped away from it than there are people who are in the movement right now. But what's your specific story? Why, why aren't you in the movement anymore? I mean, for me, it was sort of a gradual process of coming to question and then distrusts the, the situation that I was in. When I was, after I graduated from Trinity, I spent a couple years working for um, members of the organization that had their, their own sort of separate business. And at that time was given the opportunity to go to Hungary and live on a farm in the middle of nowhere in the Hungarian countryside and uh, be an editor to uh, a Swami there that was writing this uh, massive book. But I was there for the first time, really living full time, in a sense, isolated from my family and the outside world and, you know, and so on and so forth. And I, I think that part of that experience sort of pushed me to the point of questioning, you know, whether or not this was really what I wanted for myself. As far as a, you know, a particular moment when things sort of switched for me, 
uh, it was while I was there that I was having a conversation with someone who, who I considered sort of an inspiration or a mentor, I guess, in, in my spiritual life. And one of the things that we were talking about was that when he had joined, uh, he was uh, a member of the, the civil rights movement, uh, was to some degree, I think, even involved in the Black Panthers. And he had joined a, rel- a religious organization to whom these things were just unimportant. And, and I was trying to understand how you could go from one environment to the other and not be sort of constantly brushing up against this, this sort of paradox. And his reply to me was that he had just switched off the part of his brain that would cause that, that problem for him. And I was, you know, I was shocked. I was pretty horrified. I didn't really expect that that would be his answer. But the more that I thought about his answer, the more that it resonated with me, the idea that I had done and was doing the same in order to sort of maintain, maintain my membership in the movement, that there were th- certain things that I just didn't think about. Uh, and that was, you know, sort of, I guess, the beginning of the end. You know, I really started doing a lot of research and reading and finding, a lot, finding out a lot of things that I hadn't previously been aware of and, and thinking about things in a way that I hadn't previously, previously allowed myself to think about them. Well, I think every movement like this one, particularly fairly new movements, so a 50-year-old or so movement like this one, has to struggle at a kind of a master narrative level and also for each individual at an individual level with some of the same questions. I mean, these movements tend sure. to be led by one person uh, or at least founded by one person. So in this case, it's the man known as Bhaktivedanta. And that one person, I think it almost goes with the territory that that, that one person, although the movement may argue that he embodies perfection. He rarely is perfect. Whoever whoever we're talking about, whatever movement we're talking yeah. about, they're just going to be, you know, warts. And usually people are kind of a product of their time. So this guy, you know, he really does have some troubling things to say about race, some things to say about Jews, and some things to say about women, none of which would really kind of fit very well into, A, who you are as an individual, but also something that the movement, and he's dead now, the movement has to figure out, well, are we just gulping this guy down warts and all, or do we somehow or other figure out how we can separate out these disturbing ideas that just don't fit? You know, I think that's a really, you really, you encapsulated, you know, really the problem in ISKCON today, Mm. Um, and and one that I didn't see uh, a solution to really the status quo in ISKCON that I don't think will ever be substantially questioned is the idea that Bhaktivedanta is perfect, you know, full stop. And you, you come, you know, you get into this very difficult situation where confronted with some of these things that he said or, you know, positions that he held on, on different things that you can, you know, there are any number of things that you can do, but you can ignore them. You can come to some sort of understanding or interpretation that either gives him a pass or sort of reinterprets what he's said so that it's, you know, less offensive or, you know, less problematic for you personally than it otherwise would be. But then there are people that just, they, they do accept it. They swallow it whole. Uh, and there was, and probably still is, you know, a very strong movement of people who, who feel that uh, none of these things should be questioned and that, they, they should be accepted uh, and even implemented within the society, uh, particularly th- uh, attitudes towards women and their position in the society, what they can and can't do, 
ideas about polygamy and the you know appropriate age for marriage and you know all of these things that would definitely give people pause in our modern culture. Even one comment that would seem to condone, at least in some instances, what the rest of us would call rape. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's an excellent example, I think, where there's a particular quote from one of his books uh, that I came in contact, contact with, and it's, I think I'll get it more or less exactly, but, you know, you'll, you'll see. He, uh, a woman likes a man uh, who is very expert at rape. So it's, you know, obviously that's a troubling statement. And, you know, when I first encountered it, and I think now when people still encounter it, the sort of going notion about this quote is that he was using an archaic definition of the word rape, meaning that really what he was talking about was uh, men who were just a little more sexually aggressive, you know, macho men, women like macho men. But the, the idea that he wasn't saying what is literally represented in his words is, is sort of the common interpretation. But later, when I sort of went back to look at this, I found that not only was this not the only quote on the topic, there were a few, but that if I looked at every time he'd used the word rape, it, it was perfectly clear that he was not using an archaic definition, but the same definition that you and I, you know, give to the word, basically sexual assault. So there was that. But then there was also the fact that I found in one conversation about this particular quote, he says, and this is a direct quote, rape means without consent sex. So <laughs> there's not really much you can do in that situation. Your, you know, your impulse to sort of explain it away is now sort of out the window, and now you have to grapple with the idea itself. Is this something that I'm going to accept? Is the idea of a spiritually pure or perfect person or, or not? And so that's, you know, I mean, that was ultimately the, the decision I made was that I, it didn't represent to me what I thought uh, someone who was perfect would say. Well, Eric, um, I've taught a lot of really interesting people, and I hope that they won't be hurt if they're listening if I say I think you are the most interesting person I've ever had the uh, chance to teach, uh, and I've said that to you in other contexts, too. Montreal-based writer and former member of the Hare Krishna movement, thank you so much for joining us today, Eric. Thank you, Colin. That's, that's quite flattering. Appreciate you uh, having me on. Thanks. All right. So we're, we're going to end now. Once, once again, I want to thank Josh Delea, who nursed this show along. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow with something very, very different. I've actually forgotten what it is, but I guarantee you it's going to—oh, actually, no, you, we're going to be talking tomorrow about uh, the controversy over the production of Julius Caesar, which is being objected to as being a little bit too on the nose in its parallels with President Trump. Anyway, thanks to all of you who listened today, and we'll be back tomorrow. Oh,